he made a huge fuss about a very small cut in his finger. And the discrepancy between the two making such a fuss of something so small, whereas he had just killed 77 people, maybe shows also the fact that he, he couldn't feel empathy or remorse or had no real understanding of, of the suffering he just inflicted on, on so many people. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil. The International Criminal Court sentenced former Ugandan militia leader Dominic Ongwen to 25 years in jail. The news came of the shootings on the island of Utoa. Across Paris, other attackers detonate their suicide vests. Bombs explode throughout London. It was an act of pure evil. Hello and welcome to Terribly and Terrifyingly Normal, a podcast series on perpetrators of mass atrocities. My name is Nicola Kwaadvlieg, and as always, I'm joined by Alette Smeuners, professor at the University of Groningen, specialized in perpetrators. And today we're joined by Mariana Vujosevic. She's a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Groningen and a lecturer of moral and political philosophy at the Institute for Philosophy at Leiden University. Today, we'll talk about those that are terribly and terrifyingly abnormal. First of all, thanks both of you for being here. Alet, we start with you today, because throughout the podcast series, you have mentioned that most perpetrators of mass atrocities are normal. But as today's introduction suggests, that doesn't apply to everyone, does it? No, there are also perpetrators who are absolutely not normal and who have mental deficiencies or specific features, characteristics that are not that normal. And good examples are perpetrators who are narcissists, mm -hmm. who have narcissistic uh, character traits like an inflated ego, feel very entitled, are very dominant, very self-centered and a lack of empathy. Other example is a psychopath who also lack empathy, lack conscience, lack uh, fear, and um, perpetrators who have especially these two characteristics are more inclined to commit crimes and to commit violent behavior. And some of the perpetrators do have that. We discussed that already in the very first, uh, or in the second episodes, the men pulling the strings, mm -hmm. that some of the... Um, top leaders at the top of the chain of command have psychopathic and narcissistic character traits. And especially in those cases, it's combined with what is called Machiavellianism, which is a cold, calculating and exploitive way of, of behaving. And together, these three are called the dark triad. But also more low-ranking perpetrators do have these character traits that are less normal. And that makes them more likely to commit crimes than, than a quote-unquote normal people? In general, research has shown that people who suffer from narcissism or are a psychopath are more inclined to commit criminal behavior and use violence. Not all, not by definition. There are also psychopaths who are non-criminal psychopaths mm -hmm. and who do not violate the law, but some indeed do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as you mentioned, we already touched upon narcissism a little bit. So I want to start with uh, psychopaths, which very conveniently, uh, Mariana, you've also uh, written uh, something about. Could you explain to us what a uh, psychopath is in a bit more detail? Okay, so first of all, thank you for having me here and for the invitation. 
So psychopaths are a group of people very interesting to philosophers. Mm-hmm. Actually, they are a lot used in, a, in the contemporary moral psychology to argue that some philosophical theories are true and others false. For example, to argue that sentimentalism, the theory that emotions, feelings, uh, and and sentiments are necessary for making moral judgments, mm-hmm. are true because psychopaths are said to lack certain emotional reactions, feelings, and so forth. And then they, they use that as a kind of walking example, saying, okay, you can see, so they do not make moral judgments because of that. Mm-hmm. And there are, on the other hand, a group of philosophers defending rationalism, saying, oh, it's not only emotional deficits that psychopaths show, and that's not the only reason why they fail to make moral judgments, but they also have some kind of more general rational deficits, so not only emotional, but also rational. So that's why they are interesting in philosophy. Now, philosophers use... Uh, the term psychopathy, which might be a bit outdated because, as we know, so psychopathy is an optional specifier of the diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder. And I also used in my work psychopathy because that's what, how they use, that, mm-hmm. use it. Too. But what they have in mind is basically to, it's based on the psychopathy checklist, <clears throat> revised Robert Hare's checklist. So, they have in mind uh, individuals uh, who exhibit lack of empathy, of guilt or remorse, egocentricity, have a grandiose sense of self-worth, pathological lying, uh, manipulative behavior, poor behavioral control, irresponsibility or failure to accept responsibility for their behavior, and they usually perform immoral acts that we find very bad in the sense that so then the question was how about their uh, moral competence Mm -hmm. and what I found interesting is when I was thinking about conscience and they are said to lack conscience or to have a kind of dysfunctional conscience but it wasn't clear what we mean by it Right, whether conscience is underlies all the symptoms that I have mentioned. So uh, also it wasn't clear what we mean by it, because there are, of course, different definitions or uh, accounts of conscience. So if that lies at the uh, <clears throat> heart of their immorality or moral incompetence, what do we really mean by it mm-hmm. and how that can explain some of the symptoms of psychopathy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, just for for the people that are uh, not very much into into philosophy, how how would you define conscience? So there are different definitions of it. So we can either conceive of conscience as a kind of feeling, mm-hmm. a kind of felt clue. We we just feel what is right or wrong, and conscience is a kind of source of this moral knowledge. So a felt clue telling us what's right or wrong. It can also be seen just as a guilt or remorse, so feeling of guilt or remorse, or it can be seen also as a combination of a kind of cognitive appraisal and feelings of guilt, usually, right, or remorse. I evaluate that I am guilty for doing that because I did something wrong, so that's a kind of belief, plus feelings of guilt. 
So one possibility is just to see it as emotion. The mm. other one is to see it as a combination of a belief and emotions or feelings of guilt. And the third option is to see just as a reflection, self-reflection or self-assessment as something purely cognitive. Mm-hmm. And there are also differences in how to understand its function in our moral lives, which is in line with what I have just explained. So we can either think it's just an emotion needed to motivate us to act morally, but it doesn't provide us with moral knowledge. But we can also think conscience is there to tell us what's right or wrong. So it is the source of moral knowledge. And it also can be, no, it's not a source of moral knowledge. It rather presupposes moral knowledge. But it's a kind of self-reflection that is based on it. So once I know that something is right or wrong, that killing is uh, wrong, of course, mm-hmm. or stealing is wrong, then then I, I have that at hand, but then I judge what I should do in a given situation uh, and judge myself. And conscience is usually understood as a kind of self judgment or mm-hmm. self-reflection yeah yeah so yeah. then maybe sometimes you could see for you understand what's right and wrong for other people but you can't necessarily apply it to yourself yes that and that is precisely what i think that happens in the case of mm-hmm. psychopaths that's very interesting um and also this this distinction between seeing right or wrong or at least applying it to yourself is that what makes uh, psychopaths more likely to commit crimes I think most certainly it does. It is how they see certain behavior and how they evaluate that. An interesting addition to what uh, Mariana said maybe is to refer to James Fallon, who was a psychiatrist, and he was studying brains. And then he was asked by a colleague to study the brains of psychopaths and Uh, to see if they have specific features. And he compared them with an ordinary sample of of brains, uh, brain scans. And then he distinguished a clear difference between the brains of psychopath and the brains of his control group. But there was one exception. And then he looked into that exception, and then he found out that that was actually his brain, which was very similar to the brain structure of psychopath. And that intrigued him very much, and he wrote a a tremendously interesting book called Inside the Mind of a Psychopath, where he also explains the different aspects and says, well, psychopaths have a certain brain structure, but it also depends how they are raised. Mm -hmm. And he says that makes whether you're either a criminal psychopath or a non-criminal psychopath. And he says criminal psychopaths are then raised in a certain environment, that is more abusive, negligent, uh, etc., whereas he got uh, raised in a very warm environment. Yet in the book, he also says, and that refers to what Mariana says, that at some point he, he has this whole journey trying to study what empathy is and what conscience is, and then realizes that he never realized that he was absolutely not empathetic. And that he he didn't have, he lacked empathy, but he didn't realize that because he didn't know. But at the end of the book, he also said, "But I don't care." So it's also his um, his way of saying, "Well, I I don't care doing that." But I don't know if if you are familiar with the book. 
Uh, I am familiar with the book. I found it also interesting because that's precisely what I wanted to mention, that what can characterize him as a psychopath is still that he doesn't care. So there is a kind of stunning lack of moral motivation. So he he, even though he might not do criminal things or kill someone, etc., so he still he doesn't care whether he's going to hurt someone, and that's where the conscience comes in because you need to explain moral motivation, and that's something that he anyway <laughs> seems to lack, even if he is not doing uh, bad things. Yeah. So what what's interesting is that this example is of someone who was a professor, right? Who, mm. who wrote a very interesting book. So psychopaths don't necessarily have to conduct in criminal behavior. They can even do very good things. Uh, this is dependent on how they are raised. You want to add already something? Yeah, there, there are several dimensions within a psychopath. And uh, Lilienfeld has, has found in his research that there's a certain link between political leadership and certain psychopathic traits, meaning especially the fearless dominance, meaning that these people are not easily scared, they're very immune to stress, and then can make the right decisions. However, they don't have the antisocial part of being psychopath. And so there is a link between leadership and uh, psychopath, but uh, not the antisocial behavior. And it's also in the books by O'Hare, who's one of the most famous writers on a psychopath, who wrote a book called Snakes in Suits, who says a lot of people, a lot of CEOs, CAOs, high up in the organization of businesses are also psychopaths. So psychopaths are not necessarily criminals. However, others uh, who had a very difficult childhood, certain uprising, etc., they can more easily become criminals and, and show violent behavior. Do you have any idea on the numbers of, of people that become criminals compared to those that live a, a good life? No, I wouldn't be able to now immediately say the, the numbers but there was certain research in amongst uh, inmates in a prison, and then you see a much higher level of prevalence of a psychopath mm -hmm. being uh, interned in prisons than in the regular population, which clearly shows a, a certain link. Mm -hmm. And research in criminology has shown the link between narcissism, psychopath, and lack of empathy in criminal behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's definitely a risk factor. Um, so there should also be examples of people committing mass atrocities uh, that are psychopaths. Could you give one, Alet? Yeah, there are several examples, but one that also comes to mind is uh, Anders Breivik, who committed the, the terror attack in Norway on the 22nd of July 2011, mm -hmm. where he first uh, had a bomb being exploded in Oslo, and ultimately 77 people died because then he went to Utøya where he shot a lot of the people gathered there, young people gathered there on, on the island. And Anders Breivik is clearly an example of someone with no empathy. And he was, by several psychiatric teams, qualified as a narcissist with an antisocial personality disorder, so meaning a psychopath who lacked empathy. And that played an important role in, uh, in the crimes he, he committed. 
Mm-hmm. And what is the role exactly of empathy in, in conscience? So there, there are disagreements about how mm-hmm. we are to understand this. So there are, first of all, um, at least in philosophy, uh, contemporary moral psychology, disagreements about how to understand empathy. So some philosophers argue that empathy is just a kind of feeling, feeling what other people are feeling. And the other are saying that it's not just a kind of feeling, but it's also a cognitive thing, but it's called also cognitive empathy. So putting yourself in the shoes of others or mm-hmm. mind reading, perspective taking. So being capable of putting yourself in the position of others so, so that you can understand others So not only feeling what they feel, but also understand why I feel it and so on. And uh, as to the relation between conscience and uh, empathy, on some accounts of conscience, they presuppose perspective taking, what is called usually empathy. So um, on the account of conscience that I applied in in my work, it it does presuppose perspective taking, Mm -hmm. because I base my account on uh, Immanuel Scant's theory of conscience, in which conscience is a kind of inner judge or internal judge. So he uses the metaphor of the court to explain how conscience works. So the idea is that we should try to put ourselves in a different positions of advocate, of judge, of accuser, and then try to evaluate our own actions in an impartial way. So without biases. But then if you evaluate your own actions and character from different standpoints, then you come to a kind of conclusion whether you should uh, hold yourself accountable for something and feel guilty or not and feel relief. Mm -hmm. In previous podcasts, we discussed the term cognitive dissonance, which showed that basically all perpetrators don't see themselves as perpetrators because of this working of cognitive dissonance. And now you mentioned guilt, and I think that is a necessary component for cognitive dissonance to work, right? Yes, there is also some discussion in contemporary moral psychology about the link between uh, conscience and cognitive dissonance. And in particular with Kant's view of conscience and cognitive dissonance, so there are some interpretations (coughs) given, for example, by Janet Kennett, Uh, saying that this cognitive dissonance theory is completely in line with Kant's theory of conscience because we don't like inconsistencies, so we want to change something. And it's also about, on the one hand, what's morally right or wrong. So uh, knowledge, moral knowledge is presupposed there. But then when we do something, what is not in line with that, we feel guilty. So, And then we want to avoid that. And that's how the cognitive dissonance uh, works. So we don't like these inconsistencies. And then we feel guilty, but we want to, to improve ourselves to do better next time. And that's, for example, what they link with psychopathy. So Janet Kennett links that with psychopathy, saying that psychopaths are not aware of these inconsistencies. So the cognitive dissonance doesn't seem to work in their case as it usually does. So they do not feel guilty. And that's what I found interesting, actually. So to, to, discuss, to discuss how their dysfunctional consciences have, how they are linked to their uh, 
say, abnormal feelings of guilt because in any case, there is something. So I don't want to say that they uh, lack these feelings altogether or remorse or guilt, but in any case, they are completely, seem to be completely different. So I had here, which is perhaps interesting, an example uh, or from uh, Robert Hare's book where he cites serial killer Teddy Ted Bundy and what he says about guilt. And he says it's it's this mechanism we use to control people. It's an illusion. It's a kind of social mechanism, and it's very unhealthy. It does terrible things with our bodies. And there are much better ways to control our behavior than that rather extraordinary use of guilt. So it's a completely different view of guilt than we normally have. And I wanted to present dysfunctional conscience as a kind of unrealistic moral self-assessment because they never realistically uh, assess their own actions and character. They never feel guilt in a way that we have, right? That's why they cannot make sense of it, as the uh, this quotation seems to suggest. Mm-hmm. Maybe an illustration of uh, Anders Breivik that we, who we mentioned before, mm-hmm. Very shortly after he he killed all all those people and he was interrogated by the police, he made a huge fuss about a very small cut in his finger. And the discrepancy between the two making such a fuss of something so small, whereas he had just killed 77 people, maybe shows also the fact that he, he couldn't feel empathy or remorse or had no real understanding of of the suffering he just inflicted on on so many people. Yes, and he couldn't also become aware of the inconsistency because the inconsistency would be here, oh, you killed so many people and now you are concerned about your own small, uh, unimportant thing. But so psychopaths do care about themselves from this, I, I realize. They're very self-centered mm-hmm. psychopaths in, in, in general, and they they look out for their own needs very, very strongly, and they manipulate others, they lie, and in order to get what they want themselves. So they only see uh, their own, own needs. I don't know if you would agree? Yes, I would agree. There are also some studies showing, for example, that when they do something wrong, the way they see themselves, their identity doesn't change. So mm-hmm. it doesn't affect them. The, the way they see themselves. So it's about that unrealistic self-assessment. So it seems that they are constantly making exceptions for, for, for themselves without being even being aware of doing so, of these inconsistencies, right? That, that something seems to be perfectly okay for them to do, whereas they do not expect other people to do that. Then they would say, oh, that's unfair. And that seems to be a kind of reason to to say that they do not make proper moral judgments about what they need to do in a given situation. So there are a lot of studies when they are asked what someone should do in a hypothetical situation, and they give good answers. Even in some studies about the moral conventional distinction, some studies show that they cannot make a distinction what is morally wrong and what is conventionally wrong, like morally wrong would be killing someone and and conventional wrong would be um, talking out of a or something like that, where you 
don't hurt someone else, at least not physically. And some studies show that they cannot make a distinction, but some studies also show that or suggest that if we help them a bit, they do make distinction as others. So it seems that on a very abstract level, they are good at giving good answers to hypothetical dilemmas. But when it comes to, to judging what they should do in a given situation, so first personal moral judgments, there seem to, to go wrong, right? <laughs> I think that that's also the uh, the examples that Fallon, James Fallon gives, that he says, well, because I was raised well, I don't uh, violate the law. And to, to give one example, which struck me in a book of another scholar who is also, it, it's a female scholar and I forgot her name, but she is also a psychopath and explains, explains what it is like. And she gives this example that she said her best friend at some point the father uh, of this best friend had cancer. And her best friend, of course, had a hard time during that period. And she said, well, so she was no longer fun to be with. So I didn't see her for quite a long time. Well, most people would, would think that would be yeah, outrageous. You don't do that. You, if, if it's your best friend, you support your friend. But she very clearly said, I don't see the point, because for me, she was no fun. She was just sad all the time, so why should I be stay with her? And that's a very common day life example, I think, of, of lack of empathy, uh, of, of, of seeing the feelings of other people. Yes, yes, precisely. And that seems to be something that affects they, their way of making judgments for themselves, moral judgments, what they need to do, because it seems that they can just put themselves in their own position and not in a position of other people, how they would feel, right? And then they cannot recognize that that would not be fair in a given situation to do. I can see how the lack of empathy would allow someone to not feel guilt about a certain crime they commit. However, I can imagine that the punishments that those uh, that will follow after those crimes will still deter people from doing them. Why do some psychopaths still choose to commit crimes? Maybe because they don't really take the possibility of punishment into account. There's a general criminological theory that says it's not the level of the punishment, but the likelihood that you will be punished that can deter crimes. Uh, so the likelihood that you get caught rather than uh, the height of the, uh, the punishment. And psychopaths, especially criminal ones, very often also have narcissistic tendencies. And then they feel a strong entitlement and perceive themselves um, much better than other people. A narcissist is someone who in, in fact falls in love with an inflated image of themselves. And especially if you have that combination, and, and Breivik is an example of someone who was also a narcissist, they don't really see the option of, of being caught, of getting caught. And I therefore think that they don't really take it that much into account. It's more the non-criminal ones who, who might take it into account. What shows that Breivik thought he wouldn't get caught? I'm not sure where you can clearly see that he, he thought he wouldn't get caught because ultimately he called the police himself. But in his case, that was also a means to get the message out there. I think he used the fact that he was caught not as something bad, but as a political arena where he can 
could present the manifesto he had sent already to, I think, 6,000 people mm-hmm. and used uh, the court as, as the political arena for his ideas. Mm-hmm. So in his case, not getting caught didn't play uh, a, a, a big role because he wanted to get caught. And he actually himself called the police and said, hey, I'm at Utoya killing people and you better come here. And he also immediately gave himself up rather than putting up a fight with the police. Because to the police he said, well, I'm on your side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because his crimes were politically motivated. Yes. Yes. What, what was his political motivation? Um, he was is obsessed with Islamophobia and believed that the Western culture was um, yeah, destroyed or, or uh, stained with influences from the Islam. And he was very much against that. Mm-hmm. Are you born without empathy or a conscience? So I think this is a very difficult question. I mean, there are some, some studies about conscience in children and uh, when do they um, exhibit some kind of feelings so for guilt and so on. And it seems it happens early. And there are some studies suggesting that in uh, children with psychopathic tendencies, they do not show this feelings of guilt also early. And conscience is mostly thought about either involving these feelings or, or triggering these feelings. So some do say that psychopaths are individuals without conscience, I would say rather perhaps with a dysfunctional one, but uh, I'm afraid that we cannot answer the question precisely whether we are born with it or without it. Remains the nature-nurture debate, Annette. Yes, uh, I just wanted to raise that because there there are different causes to it. They can be uh, biological, psychological, situational, and they also interact, these three factors. And uh, someone, for instance, said, well, the uh, prefrontal cortex plays an important role in in deciding what what is right or wrong. Yeah, which is a part of the brain. Yes, which is part of the brain. And there could be deficiencies as of birth, but it could also occur later. And some scholars have suggested that people who live in a war zone, like now, for instance, uh, the example was given already of Palestine uh, several years ago, but it's very relevant now, mm-hmm. could lead to certain damage amongst young people growing up who then uh, develop a a different sense of of, of morality because of the damage caused to the fact that in a very sensitive period while growing up, they live in in a war zone and in such danger where they're attacked. So these things can can play a role in in later life. Yeah, because they they are always in a very violent situation. They start to devalue human human life or they think it's normal to take away other human life? Yeah, they, they get in a certain survival mode in, in, in a period how to grow up in, in very difficult and harsh uh, circumstances mm. and that might affect the regular ordinary development that you need to grow up as a healthy human being. And that could partly explain why Hamas has uh, abducted children and, and, and uh, committed... Uh, uh, human rights violations. Is that correct? I'm not sure if you could make the link that uh, directly, 
but uh, the period of, of, of suppression and limitation of rights and living under very difficult, harsh circumstances can affect the way you view the world, but also how you see things and, yeah, brain issues. Mm -hmm. If that is a result of how you're growing up in the situation you're in, then even those people that we've called abnormal, because those have deficiencies, mental deficiencies, couldn't those people also be called normal because they started out as normal people but then transitioned through their circumstances into abnormal ones? In some cases, yes. But in other cases, I do think some people are born with certain deficiencies or were raised in such abnormal circumstances that it's very hard to talk about normal people anymore. But there can be biological, genetic uh, deficiencies that do play a role. Yes, I just thought about, uh, for example, some cases that are mentioned also in philosophy a lot. Uh, Phineas Gage, for example, so that's a, 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 a case of acquired sociopathy in which after a brain damage, he started acting differently and making immoral choices, whereas before that he was known as a kind of someone who is very uh, careful and <laughs> loving and so on. So it seems that some brain damage do affect moral decision making, which might also, in a way, affect conscience as well. Uh, but I don't know whether there is some more evidence <laughs> in, to support this claim. But then there is a discussion whether that affects just uh, uh, their motivation for acting morally or also their moral knowledge. Some argue that they just have moral knowledge but just fail to act morally because they are not motivated, right? Mm -hmm. I can imagine that it's very difficult to stop people without empathy from doing bad things because they don't feel for other people. How would you recommend professionals to try to deter uh, psychopaths, for example, or narcissists from committing crimes? That's a very difficult question. <laughs> That's why I'm asking it. If I'd known the answer, I might not have asked it. Well... I think, yeah, as said, it's it's very difficult. But then I refer again back to the book of James Fallon, who explains the fact that he is a non-criminal psychopath. He was still raised in a very warm environment with a very caring mother who taught him certain limits of his behavior. So he didn't violate the law. He still made choices that showed his lack of empathy. So maybe that is very difficult to ever repair, to make him ever really care mm -hmm. what he does. Because he also ends, if I'm not mistaken, it, it stands out in my mind that he ends the book. And you know what? I just don't care. So that shows this real lack of, of empathy. But you can still train at least that's what what he is suggesting to stay within the limits of the law and he was non-criminal but also non-violent mm -hmm. he was maybe also non-caring and that will be the most the, the hardest part to change but yeah a caring environment showing exactly what the norms and rules are oh, yeah yes i've also thought so but from the point of view of philosophy they would like to emphasize that he then in that case a lot of philosophers would do so that that he still doesn't make 
proper or real moral judgments, right? Because not everything what is permissible legally is also so morally moral. So, so sometimes it could be the case that he acted immorally, but would still be considered as morally wrong. What I actually do, I give that example usually <laughs> to students when we discuss the moral conventional distinction. And, and then the question is whether, according to some theories, James Fallon would be uh, capable of making the distinction between morally right or wrong or making moral judgments, real moral judgments or not. And uh, I think that, that he is a really interesting case, test case for some moral theories. So. <laughs> what, is, what is your thought? So the question is whether you can make moral judgments without recognizing others as uh, individuals. And I think if he is incapable of doing so, I don't think that he really can make moral judgments about what to do in a given situation for himself. So first personal moral judgments. But for other people, it might be possible. I, it depends. Also, some people say oh, moral judgment is you can say oh, this is right and this is wrong. And some say, OK, but that's not yet moral judgments. That's a kind of general moral knowledge. Mm -hmm. And moral judgment comes in once you need to apply that general moral knowledge in a given situation, especially uh, for yourself. So to, <laughs> to think about what I should do in a given situation, because then we tend to to be self-deceptive and to make exceptions as to, to still do what we would perhaps like to do in a given situation, but then also to justify that to ourselves, right? Not to have the problem with cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. we, we now also talk about it as if it's purely black and white, normal, mm -hmm. abnormal, psychopath, not a psychopath, narcissist, not a narcissist. But in fact, it's a gradual scale, of course. From a psychological point of view, there is a certain moment when you don't have narcissistic traits anymore, but you are actually suffering from a narcissistic personality disorder. So from a psychological psychiatric point, there is a, a clear borderline. But on the other hand, if you look at, at people, there's this very gradual scale. So yeah, what we just discussed is the most extreme on one hand, but I, I generally think teaching people what norms are, what they should follow, what the rules are, would definitely help for a large number of people to following them. Mm -hmm. But then coming to mass atrocities, that exactly the, the problem, that is a, a society and an environment where these norms and rules have changed and where there's suddenly an ideology, as we discussed earlier, that is actually saying, well, killing people is fine, is, is okay in this situation. And that makes it problematic. Mm -hmm. All right, finally, uh, Mariana, we've, uh, we've taken a bit more of a philosophical approach to understanding mass atrocities than we've done so before. And you're obviously the expert on this. Do you think it's important to take this philosophical approach in understanding crimes? Let's say more general would be the, the kind of the capacity to make moral judgments or moral motivation, so moral competence, if, if you wish to see it as a kind of combination of making moral judgments on the one hand and being morally motivated. I think that it is important because you have to think whether you find it moral or not on your own, no matter what the environment says to you. And then the point is that you should actually 
think about what you should do, no matter what people tell you. I think that that's interesting because in that sense, you're uh, developing your conscience or exercising your, your cultivating your capacity. It would, would mean that even in the situation where in the society, it's, it's okay to kill. So if, if you, on this view, cultivate your conscience, it would still tell you that it's not okay, even if it's widely accepted, these crimes. It shows how uh, how multifaceted mass atrocities can be. Yes. Mariana, Alet, thank you very much for joining us today. And for everyone who is at home, thank you very much for tuning in. And we hope you join us next uh, week again. It's going to be an interesting one.